Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week, Hong Kong gets ugly just as Paul Keating says we should get over China. Josh Frydenberg says an ageing population is an economic time bomb for Australia. And the Tories have the early points in the Brexit election, maybe. Uh, We'll be talking about all of that, plus in our Books and Culture segment, we have a podcast series on a historic Victorian election, Jeremy Samet's book on corporate virtue signalling, an ancient work by H.P. Lovecraft, and also the Amazon Prime series Man in the High Castle, where the Germans won the war. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the IPA. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au and join up now. And you can also look at previous episodes of this podcast. And if you're on the app, uh, please hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and take the opportunity to give us a rating and please make it a good one. It is time to introduce our panellists, starting as always with my co-host, Dr Chris Berg from RMIT University. Good day, Scott. Good to have you back in the country, Chris. I know, it's a real pleasure. <laughs> it is. Um, Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us again. And Director of Research, Daniel Wilde. G'day. Great. We are going to start, as I mentioned, uh, with Hong Kong, some astonishing uh, vision over the last couple of days uh, at the Hong Kong Polytechnic. It's really raising the stakes there, Chris Berg. It really is. So um, uh, I think there's there's horrifying vision and there's horrifying fact as well. So the vision has been, of course, the extraordinary um, scenes of violence between the protesters and the police, how they've ramped up over the last fortnight, focused on um, sieges at um, first the Chinese University of Hong Kong and then um, more recently and, and more extraordinarily the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. The police have um, gone so far as threatened to use real bullets, but they haven't done so um, yet, So, um, which is, of course, um, great, but is a sign of the direction that this is going. But I think the most worrying thing um, that's happened in the last week or so, in fact, in the last 48 hours, is the Hong Kong High Court ruled one of the um, uh, Hong Kong government's um, uh, policies, the anti-mask ban on the streets of Hong Kong has unconstitutional. Um, they said that the anti-mask ban, because of course all the protesters are wearing these black masks, mm. um, and the High Court said that it did not comply with Hong Kong's basic law, the basic law being the um, quasi-constitution that was agreed to when the British withdrew. But, and, and that's all great, that's, 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 that's how this thing works, but the National People's Congress Standing Committee, which is Beijing's legislative body, immediately responded with this statement. Whether Hong Kong's laws are consistent with the basic law can only be judged and decided by the NPCSC, so the Beijing legislative body itself. No other authority has the right to make judgments and decisions. In other words, it appears that Beijing has decided that the constitutionality of Hong Kong's laws is to be decided by Beijing, not by the Hong Kong High Court. Now, on the face of this, this is this is the big game because um, this seems to signal the end, the absolute end of British common law review of constitutionality in Hong Kong, in other words, an end to a legal end to Hong Kong independence. So I think as we see these extraordinary scenes, there is this constitutional battle going on that is arguably a lot more worrying and shows Beijing just systematically working 
its it, it, its um, political power into the Hong Kong system. Dan, um, uh, how have you been seeing these developments over the last week or so? Well, I think that's right. That you know, China's overall objective is to continue to try and subsume you know Hong Kong and the other uh, you know Taiwan and so forth into their orbit. Um, they are, of course, a rising power, like all rising powers throughout human history. They want to exert their influence through the region around the world and they take every opportunity to do that whether it's south china sea whether it's through the international um, organizations like the world trade organization united nations um, and other forums like that so i think the you know obviously the skirmish over hong kong but the particular issues that you just raised then are a part of that broader picture of china um, seeking to expand its its influence and dominance around the region so that's the i would say the general context for it evan how, how do you view this um, it's very worrying that they would um, immediate, so suddenly come out and say, well, that we don't care what the judiciary in Hong Kong says, uh, it's up to Beijing. Um, and it, it really shows the erosion of, of what was agreed to um, when the, when the Br- British withdrew. I think more broadly, uh, the protests have taken a bit of a, a more uh, harsher uh, side. And I, I think you, you've seen from some of the footage that's come out uh, the violence of, of some of the, the protesters. Now, there's been some criticism of the protesters, and yes, every protest will have a few people that uh, are, are out of line, but I think to disparage protesters more broadly uh, with the, the actions of a few uh, would be uh, quite negative. Uh, I think the protesters are fighting for what they believe to be their natural rights and, and, and democratic rights. And they they see the um, uh, the authoritarian regime in Beijing as as clamp, trampling on, on those rights. Yeah, and that's one of the interesting things that we've seen over the last couple of weeks is a number of um, of the Hong Kong protest leaders pointing out that this is the last stand as as they see it. And what are we trying to avoid? We're trying to avoid basically becoming like the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. We don't want to be subject to a state that does that to its own people. And in that sense, I think, Dan, you're absolutely right. This is Hong Kong is a um, section of a more general I actually think that the Chinese state is under a lot of stress right now because um, uh, of the Uyghur issue, because of what's happening in Hong Kong that they obviously don't know how to deal with. Um, uh, they they don't want to do a Tiananmen Square. They don't know. They don't want the protest to continue, but they don't know how to how to um, stop it from happening. At the same time, they're um, getting more and more international criticism over what they're doing to the Uyghur Muslims. And and interestingly enough, um, uh, the, the, the other story of that is Taiwan. So Taiwan has an election in early January, on January the 11th, and this has massively boosted what has happened in Hong Kong and in Xinjiang has massively boosted the anti-China party, the um, ruling anti-China party against the um, pro-China opposition. Um, so I, I, and I'll be interested in your thoughts, Dan. Um, I think that what we're seeing right now in China internally is actually a state under really massive stress. And if you're Xi Jinping, I don't think you know what to do. Yeah, I think that that's right. Uh, it's a little bit wrong to see the Chinese Communist Party as like a monolithic whole. There are factions within the Chinese Communist Party, as there all, always are with any kind of political party, and there's no difference to that. I think Xi Jinping is sort of more of the hardline, Mao Zedong kind of component to it. There are other reformers in there. 
But the, the broader thing here is China, well, the Chinese Communist Party as it is now is really a Frankenstein creation of the West. Like the West has said, we'll do business with you, we'll allow you to become very wealthy. And they've um, basically, the West has underwritten the rise of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so whether or not the um, you know, international criticism won't do anything, the only thing that will bring it down is refusing to do business and commerce with China. Um, so the question is, will the West uh, choose um, its moral values over freedom or will it be wedded to its materialism? Now, I would say at the moment we're too wedded to materialism um, to actually seriously take the actions that will be needed to uh, cripple China. Um, and that's some of what, you know, one of the things that President Trump has done is actually basically created or raised this as a, a, a bigger issue, threatening to prevent US companies from investing in and doing business with China. That is exactly what you would need to happen in order to get China to change. Um, that would bring a significant amount of economic dislocation. Uh, but having, you know, nicely worded statements that we don't agree with what you're doing in, in with the Muslims, as an example, but we'll still continue to do business with you doesn't really mean much. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're vastly overstating the capacity of, of the West to uh, inflict economic damage on, on the scale uh, that would actually change their behaviour. And if you look through history, I mean, attempts to do so very rarely succeed. Uh, I mean, if, if you know, very small states, um, you know, san sanctions and so on can affect, you know, everything up to and including regime change. But if, if you look at, say, the interwar period, uh, you know, the Italian uh, intervention in Abyssinia and the sanctions there, um, what happened with Germany, what happened with Japan vis-a-vis -vis Manchuria, uh, there were programs of sanctions and uh, uh, they did – not only did they not work, you know, some, some pundits would say that they, you know, led us, led us towards World War II. I mean, it, it is a massive economy. I, I think the, the tougher assumption or the assumption I'd like to question um, is, is really that the rise of China as an economic power – um, we'll just continue, you know, we'll continue growing into an in indefinite future. Uh, just as uh, Berg, you say, they've got real problems at the political level holding this show on the road. The other thing with um, the current leadership is they've ejected all of the economic advisors who actually opened up the economy. And these guys really believe that state power can drive economies. Like quite apart from the, you know, the, the moral failures of, of Leninism, uh, we, we're back to the old question of can a state actually succeed when they just believe that uh, they can direct investment, they can direct employment, uh, they can uh, suck money out of successful state-owned corporations and give it to the unsuccessful ones. Um, you know, the party is reasserting control over the economy just at the time when, when, when their economy uh, could actually struggle. And, you know, so the, this was the context for the Australian, just ran this, um, uh, Australian newspaper just ran a, a seminar on China on Monday and they had many speakers, including um, Paul Keating, got a lot of coverage. And, and just the assumption running through this is the unstoppable rise of China and Keating's message is just get used to it. You know, they're, they're, they're the rising power. No one can do anything about it. Why are you worried about whether they're a democracy or not? Of course they're not a democracy. They were never going to be, so stop being so silly. Journalists must stop reporting China in a negative way because we just have to accept that they're uh, as legitimate as any other power in the in the world order. I, I think the quite apart from the uh, pushing realism as a foreign policy idea to just ridiculous extremes, 
the assumption that this is just going to go on forever is, is yeah no and, and it's, it's very testable. and it's not even just that it's not going to go forever it can be worse or better that, I mean that's that's the question that we have and so no one's suggesting that tomorrow China can be a liberal democracy but we can suggest that they could you know they, they, there is a potential future where they do care more about Hong Kong as an independent city a um, semi-autonomous city where they don't um, uh, punish Uyghur Muslims where um, they respect the South China Sea um, and um, uh, our ability to use it as a trade route where they don't threaten Taiwan and that sort of thing. And, and uh, I'm not convinced, Dan, that the policy, the, the trade war policy actually gets us anywhere to achieving that. But you're absolutely right. We need to be thinking about with our relationships with China, how can we, um, uh, to the extent that we can, how can we influence them in a better way? Direction. I, I think it's it is interesting. What we, what we've seen over the last couple of years is precisely what you're talking about, Scott. We've seen a um, uh, an increasing renationalisation of some privatised entities, and um, and what I think is the economic catastrophe of the Belt and Road, which is um, not Beijing, but the local governments and the city municipalities trying to direct investment for political reasons across. The world, which has ended up with some, in fact, some economically catastrophic decisions from China's perspective. Um, what we should be doing in the West is precisely what we haven't been: is rejecting those sorts of attempts when they try to do them in Australia. As of course, um, in fact, uh, Dan, you might know more about this: the Dan Andrews policy of trying to get us involved in the Belt and Road Initiative. Well, we are involved. <laughs> no, I know, I know, yeah, we yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, um, I think it's horrifying. No, it's pretty. It, it is pretty horrifying. Um, there's an interesting point I just want to raise about um, what Scott mentioned about um, you know the problems with state planning of an economy. I think that's 100% right. But my, I, I always have this question in the back of my mind because the, re the reason why state planning doesn't work is essentially the knowledge problem, that you don't have access to information at a centralised bureaucracy. Um, but Peter Thiel gave an interesting speech to the Manhattan um, Institute a couple of weeks ago saying that artificial intelligence basically allows you to overcome the knowledge problem. And this is why China loves AI. Um, so it's possible that the Chinese Communist Party can use AI to overcome the knowledge problem, in which case you kind of overcome this problem of state-directed investment and planning. Um, so that's one of the reasons why this time it might be different um, in terms of the ability to overcome those economic challenges. So I think there are a lot of problems with that argument, but the main one is it's 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 a misreading of the knowledge. It's, Indeed. It's not because we lack the information. It's that we lack the capacity to predict innovation and change. We lack the capacity, uh, a state lacks the capacity of predicting what our preferences are going to be, what, um, you know, what the fashionable consumption goods are going to be, um, where new companies are going to be established. And that the AI... In fact, I read a book quite recently that will pop up in the show notes and I can't remember the name of. Um, AI right now is wildly overstated its capabilities. Like it's, it's quite a disappointing technology in a lot of ways. It does some magic in some things. But the idea that AI has suddenly solved the um, fact that we can't predict the future and can't predict future human activity. I just doesn't. I don't think that holds up. Now, now well, Peter Thiel knows more about technology than than I ever have, and or he's forgotten more about technology than I've ever learned. But um, I just don't see how yeah. how and, China and, could and, do and, that. And also, it, no matter how good AI is, if it's in the service of a Leninist system, this is one of the things we talked about on the Berlin Wall 
uh, recent Berlin Wall special, uh, which I recommend to everyone if you haven't already seen it. Um, uh, looking back at the Soviet Union, one of the reasons why it crumbled is that information could not flow up, no matter how, how well it was collected, mm. uh, in that case by humans, but maybe in the future by robots. You can't feed it up to the Politburo because the Politburo has already told you what the conclusion yeah, must be. The Politburo be. doesn't want to hear. So, so <laughs> that, one of the reasons why the KGB was always the most um, sophisticated agency in the Soviet Union is they were the only ones who actually had information that they could share with each other. But when they had to actually report it up, the, everything was distilled. The worst, the worst thing you wanted to be was the guy who wrote the memo for Stalin. Mm, yeah. yeah, but the the... But they are getting like technology is getting better at predicting cons- consumer behavior. For example, I mean, there's no doubt that you can you go on, uh, you know, Facebook and Google and yeah. so forth. I always go on Facebook and I find ads for products I've already purchased, mm. which I've always thought was a waste of money. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what I think did, the what, what did Henry Ford say? If I had have asked the consumer what he wanted, they would have said a, a faster horse. Mm. <laughs> I mean, and, they, and they'd be right. If too. you can predict, <laughs> robots can't predict predict consumer wants yeah. and needs. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. I think the coincidence of technology and communism is a very powerful force. Um, and I'm not convinced that we can just say, um, you know, drawing on the, the history of the Soviet Union that inevitably China won't be able to survive with a state-led economic program. I just think that there's many different factors. I'm not saying they won't survive. Point. I'm just saying mm. that their economic growth will so can I Can I just go back to, to <laughs> Sorry, the sure. strategic forum <laughs> go and the, go, go ahead, and the, the Keating speech to how disappointing and, and ridiculous the, the Paul, Paul Keating speech was there um, in telling the media to tone down and to silence their criticism of, of China. Uh, if it were not for you know good investigative journalism, we wouldn't have found out that a senator of Australia was... Uh, acting with a foreign agent to solicit donations to the Labor Party and then changing the Labor Party's policy on the South China Sea to Chinese media. We wouldn't have found out uh, all sorts of other stuff to do with Chinese influence at at universities. And it is every right of a free media to be uh, concerned about influence in Australian universities and Australian Mm -hmm. politics. And it is really a contrast of our system where we do have a free media and they are able to report uh, things about uh, foreign countries that we don't like uh, to an authoritarian regime where that doesn't happen. No, that's absolutely right. And it's worth worth briefly pointing out the the news of former IPA James Patterson, Senator James Patterson, of course, Andrew Hastie, who've just been told by the Chinese embassy that they should not apply for a visa in order to um, uh, visit China on a sort of cultural exchange or um, a sharing of opinions, um, fact, knowledge tour. Um, and it's very hard to live cooperatively with another country that you can't, especially like a major trading partner, that you can't send mm. political Surely that's up to China, right? I mean, China can decide who comes to the country. Oh, of course. I mean, uh, uh, they definitely have the power. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. They, they I just don't think it's as big a deal as what people are making out. I mean, I'm, I'm no, it is, but, but it is from a diplomacy. Decide. But it is from a diplomacy. I'm probably less yeah. less worried about the fact that they they were told not to bother applying for visas, as the pressure that those two gentlemen have then come un- come under uh, from. Uh, you know, the, the sort of diplomatic side the, the, um, to say, please stop upsetting China. 
you know, like this wouldn't have happened if you hadn't if you hadn't been upsetting China so much. Uh, that that's what actually concerns me is um, more is not the behaviour of China. I think yeah yeah uh, it, it's it's the Australians who is saying the way to to avoid such issues is to only ever say nice things about them. I mean, if the entire if every member of parliament were to adopt that philosophy, well then we've just given away our, our own sovereignty. Well, look, so unfortunately, James and Andrew have not done what is required for them to get a visa, which is um, they have to uh, repent. As long <laughs> as the people concerned genuinely repent and redress their mistakes, they view China with objectivity and reason, respect China's system, uh, the door of dialogue and exchanges will uh, always remain open. That is the official statement. Of the I actually case. think it's it's a massive issue that, that China have rejected the visas of James Patterson and, and Andrew Hastie, regardless of their criticisms of China, Australia sends uh, people politicians, leaders and alike on political exchanges all around the world to uh, countries that are hostile and countries that are friendly. And for China to not enable that exchange of ideas where, um, you know, James Patterson has said he does have some complimentary things to say about China. The fact that they've lifted millions of people, uh, the entire middle class out of poverty is a fantastic thing. Uh, And we're always going to have differences of opinion between different trading part- partners and different nations. And to be able to share that di- those differences of opinions uh, by exchanging dialogue and visiting different countries and learning new things is something that we should continue to do. Absolutely. Uh, we need those exchanges. Closer to home, our own treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, uh, made some remarks this week about the economic time bomb uh, facing Australia as a result of the ageing population. Uh, it's not the first time we've, we've heard such a phrase. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but Chris Berg, what's going on there? So um, uh, the Treasurer was setting the stage for uh, two um, uh, reports that are just about to come out. There's the mid-year um, uh, budget update, which will um, uh, give evidence about whether the government is, um, uh, how, how the surplus is going and so forth. Um, and the intergenerational report, the report that comes out um, every couple of years, spelling out the population challenges and um, demographic challenges. This was a Peter Costello initiative. And now, of course, every treasurer has done it and has to say something. His argument is that, as you said, it, um, uh, age, the aging population is an economic time bomb. And I'll quote him, as more Australians live longer, the number of working age Australians for every person aged over 65 diminishes. Whereas in 1974-75, there were 7.4 working Australians to one retired person or person over the age of 65. 40 years later in 2015, it was 4.5 to one. Over the next four decades, it'll be just 2.7 people in the workforce to one who is not in the workforce. So, you know, that's a dramatic change. Um, His conclusions from this, um, and this comes from a piece he had in the Australian Financial Review. Uh, He's got three conclusions. Uh, Migration gets a big tick from his perspective. Uh, On productivity, we should do better. Oh. Um, uh, (laughs) He's a treasurer. Um, uh, And on infrastructure, uh, the government is doing fantastic, of course, as as you can imagine. Um, Scott, the intergenerational report, though, um, before we were doing this podcast, you had some um, strong things to say. (laughs) Yeah, I I saw it through quite a different lens, quite quite apart from, you know, drawing on the same list of cliches that Treasury's provided every treasurer since 
uh, Peter Costello. I, I think it's part of the wider softening up exercise for the um, retirement incomes review. I think there's a consultation paper coming out. I've been going back through the commentary. Uh, Australian Financial Review, for instance, is is, is full of the sort of the, the official policy line, which is, you know, the answer to this economic time bomb, of course, is you know is to you know. Uh, you know, we need more su- more compulsory superannuation. We need to uh, uh, take the family ho- uh, home exemption from the assets test. We need to abolish that. Um, basically, uh, 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 get rid of the franking credits, which I seem to recall was an issue during the last campaign. I don't know. Um, you know, they, it's this laundry list of things that keeps coming up again and again and again, uh, which. Um, it's a bit of an okay boomer moment. It's like boomers were coming after you and and, and the belief that if you uh, change all these rules, suddenly this this won't be a crisis for Australia. It, it assumes that, that boomers are dumb, that they can't restructure their affairs. Um, you know, the, the so-called million-dollar house, which isn't as, isn't as big as a million-dollar house used to be, um, <laughs> is, is in itself a problem for, for pensioners. I mean, the, you know, most people are on... You know, most of the middle class goes on a part pension anyway. I, I just think it's BS I, and can't articulate it better than that. But Dan, are you with Josh or are you with Scott? Uh, well, I'd be closer to Scott no, because he's my boss. Because so. <laughs> you're contractually obliged. <laughs> um, no, I think this is a – the boomer stuff is – I mean, this is only once in a – this is going to go away once the boomers – Go, Go away. away. <laughs> yeah, so this is not – you don't need to fundamentally restructure the economy to deal with this. I don't think it's a big issue. Um, I, none of those solutions are good ideas. I mean – But these are but, – but, sorry, to, to interrupt, Dan. These are big numbers. So in 74-75, it was 7.4 working Australians to one. And if the government is correct, it'll be 2.7 working Australians to one in the next four decades. Yeah, but there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, that's just going to happen. Yep. So we just, we just live with it. It's going to have high amounts of debt for a short period of time. And then you pay it down. That's yeah. just what's going to have to happen. Um, there's no way they'll get any changes. I mean, the movements are the biggest voting block that exists. So nothing, nothing will change. We'll just live through it. Um, period of high debt, uh, get passed on. And but the big problem here is younger people. So we're, a lot of younger people don't own anything as it is. They're not homeowners. They don't even own their own cars. Um, they have a lot of debt from useless degrees they get from university and can't find work <laughs> that fully utilizes them. Uh, so they're kind of like young people in the Western world are kind of like Russian serfs. They're wealthy Russian serfs, but Russian serfs that don't own anything. And the real challenge is now you're going to have a bigger debt burden placed on them. So um, this is a broader challenge. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many young people um, uh, are acclimatized to socialism because they think that socialism will give them ownership of something. They believe that the, cur- the current system doesn't, which they're correct. The current system does not serve young people well. And so they're, they're attracted to a system that they believe will give them some kind of stake in their own future, which is an understandable proposition. So there is a much broader political economy problem here, which is I think that this is an existential threat to our democracy, to capitalism, um, and to our way of life in Australia, where you know basically you have a, a, a generation of people that have a, a significant share of the assets of the economy, whether it's super, whether it's housing, whatever else, and young people just can't get access to those things. Evan, Josh or Scott? Yeah, I, 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 I had a look at what Josh had well, to say. Well, he, his only solution <laughs> at the moment seems to be that um, people over 65 should work a bit longer. I think the um, the issue that no one wants... I mean, that's to, the very manual way of changing those yeah. statistics. Yeah, the, the, the issue that no one wants to touch is the pension asset test. 
uh, an ANU study found that um, 30,000 people have ha- uh, re- that receiving the pension have homes worth over $2 million. Um, that, is a, that is a lot of money. Uh, and that is money from the pension that is going to people that could afford not to be on the pension. Um, now, Surely the it, solution isn't just kicking old people out no, of the and home. No, and it's not. And I don't believe in retrospective changes. So I think you, you could do it in a way that's prospective and you could reduce taxes on, uh, say, superannuation to give people more flexibility uh, in in downsizing, not kicking people out of their homes, but downsizing their homes to free up the market, free up the pension uh, to deal with the issue of an ageing population. And already there are other things we could do as well. There are, um, uh, there are about, uh, sorry, 864,000 uh, in financial assets uh, people can have before they are kicked off the part pension. That is without a home. Uh, so there are a lot of things that, peop- that w- governments could do to, f- to free up uh, money in the economy and reduce the amount of money that they're going to be spending on the pension. Uh, I couldn't agree less. Um, and uh, I will, after this, supply uh, some excellent uh, analysis by uh, Judith Sloan, who, uh, the economist who writes for the, for the Australian, because uh, the, the actual numbers that would result from those policy mem- measures would not actually create any kind of a bonanza uh, for the economic bottom line. So you say 30,000 people with houses over 2 million. Many of them will also have financial assets. So they are already not receiving, uh, either not receiving the pension at all or they're already on a part pension. So we're talking about incremental changes to the amount of pension that they, they might be receiving. Secondly, they would obviously restructure their affairs. It's like, okay, I'll sell the $2 million house and move into a $1 million house and I'll spend the $1 million on hats. You know, it's it's uh, you don't this idea that there are um, pots of gold which can be accessed through legislative change is one of the reasons why chasing these sorts of measures is a total de- a dead end. You know, grow the economy, give young people an incentive to work, give them a productive economy in which they can work, let them keep their own taxation, let them keep uh, take risks, let them become yeah. asset owners in their own right, build an economic base. For the future, that's what we need to do. More, more taxes, more government is never going to build the economic base that's going to enable us to support. That's one hundred percent right. So what I, what I, what I hate about the conversation that it comes from both the Liberal and the Labor Party, you end up okay. Let's see how we can divide it up differently. The people are aging. They've got houses. They've got other assets. Let's figure out whether they should get the pension or not, or let's figure out how we can means test or unmeans test or what have you, and we end up fighting about whether people get to live in homes and whatnot, which is just completely beside the point. Because the answer has to be, as Josh Frydenberg obviously understands but doesn't necessarily have a solution to, you have to boost productivity. That, that, is, that is how we're going to deal with that. That's how we're going to pay down the debt that's, um, uh, that Dan's pointed out. But that's, that is how we are going to actually get higher living standards after all of this. And that needs to be our myopic focus. So you see an aging population. I do think an aging population is a problem um, because of, uh, in fact, um, uh, Jason Potts and I, my colleague Jason Potts, wrote a piece in Quadrant um, a few years ago in 2016 where we're very concerned about aging population leading to declining productivity and declining innovation and entrepreneurship because it turns out that young people tend to be the people who start businesses or, um, or, or certainly not an aging population starts fewer businesses. Um, but it's that sort of – we've got to focus on those productivity. How do we get more innovation? How do we get more entrepreneurship? 
Dan, I mean, obviously we should cut red tape, um, uh, but but where would you go about starting to try to to solve that aging population from a sort of supply side? Well, it's the, it's the standard thing. So reducing regulation, reducing taxes, particularly corporate tax rate, and getting energy prices down. Those are the main things you'll do to get uh, increases in productivity. There's also natural population growth. So actually encouraging people to have more of their own children. So Costello, one for mum, one for dad, one for the country. I think that's about right. Um, it's difficult for people to have a lot of kids because everything's so expensive these days, uh, housing and other such matters. Um, I'm very resistant to the idea of more migration to solve the problem because on the one hand, you're, kind of treat, you're treating migrants in a very dehumanising way. You're saying you're just a unit of production to pay for our old people, which I think is not a very welcoming attitude to have to migrants. Um, <laughs> but we've, we've also got like mass migration. Like Australia has had a mass migration program for two decades. Um, the idea that you would increase that um, is something that is not very well thought through. So I think, yeah, you're 100% right on productivity and I would say also policies um, to encourage natural population growth would be another lever that could be used. As indeed Costello did. And um, actually speaking of migration, I did note that the uh, British Conservative Party, the, the Tories, have now, I saw there was a tweet came out from Boris Johnson saying that uh, if re-elected, they would introduce an Australian-style points system for immigration. They Don't always, do it. They always say Don't that. Don't do it, No Alexander. one knows what an Australian-style point system is. Well, that's why the, it's perfect The Americans for an have campaign. talked about a Australian-style point system. The British talk about an Australian-style point system, and they never talk about the actual migration policy. No, no, no but, it, but it sounds good. I'm, it's sort of like the Australian ballot, you know, for elections. I'm, I'm glad that we're exporting something Look, to the world. Yeah, uh, that isn't like plain packaging. Yes, <laughs> no, it, it is. It is shaping up to be uh, a very interesting election campaign in Britain. Um, that was an incredibly smooth segue, and I just want to interrupt it by pointing out that was an incredibly smooth segue. Thank yeah, you. Well Thank done. You. <laughs> Keep it up. Uh, very good. Um, lay it out for us, please, Chris. Yeah, of course. So um, the British election is uh, uh, is ongoing. The election is going to be on the 12th of December. The polls show that um, Boris Johnson's Conservatives seem in a pretty good position. Um, I was looking at uh, some polling averages on the BBC website just this morning, um, the uh, average conservative um, uh, poll is 40% compared to Labor's 29%, followed by the Liberal Democrats at 15 and the Brexit party on 7 So assuming that um, that translates to seats and the Conservatives and Brexit party can work together or at least form government together, it looks like they will hold it. Johnson is pushing towards the 43% that the Conservatives received in 2017, although, of course, the party mix is quite a bit different. Um, one of the big things, though, that's happened that's of interest to us is because, of course, we've been talking about Brexit for a long time and meets many of our interesting, um, uh, interesting questions about sovereignty and nationhood and so forth, is that last week Nigel Farage's Brexit party announced that they would not contest any of the 317 seats that have been won by the Conservatives. So um, there's, they're not going to try to split votes in Conservative-held seats. They're only going to fight in Labor and Liberal Democrat and some other um, smaller parties held seats as well. Dan, is this a good move? I mean, I, I guess there's two questions. Is it a good move for Brexit and is it a good, or is it a good move for the Conservative agenda in the UK? Uh, not good for Brexit. Um, 
Alexander, not Boris Johnson, Alexander is his name, is not a pro-Brexit person. Sorry, go back on that. <laughs> his name's Alexander, not Boris. He's a, you know, just as he has a fake name, he has a fake view on Brexit. Uh, <laughs> wow. He would not... I'm Googling this as you speak. He, is not pro, he wasn't pro-Brexit until he saw a potential political opportunity and nothing, you know, he's a politician, so fair game. But um, his, his deal, such as it is, is not Brexit. The only person offering Brexit was Nigel Farage and the Brexit party. So... Um, I wanted to see Farage run against the Tories, split the vote, and hopefully they get up on the first past the post because only a no-deal Brexit is a Brexit. Um, I don't believe, I've said this for years, Brexit will never happen. Um, (laughs) Boris Johnson is a part of the political class. He doesn't want it to happen. They've all worked together to slow walk this into oblivion. Um, They've, under his deal, there's a, a transitional period till the end of 2020. So it's going to be another year after this. And, it will keep going and going and going and going. He's going to pay them 30-something billion pounds <laughs> to leave. Um, he's wedded this to ideas of trade agreements and all. He's ob- deliberately muddying the waters. Um, so I don't think Brexit will happen. Uh, the Tories won't deliver it. They had David Cameron didn't do it. Theresa May didn't do it. Boris Johnson didn't do it. Why do we think Boris Johnson is going to do it now? Can I, can I just... Can I I, just I, sorry, I just want to point out that... Sorry, to clarify, his name, you're right, is Alexander Boris... Defeffel Johnson. Yeah. Wow. Um, can I, can I just take you up on this idea that, that Boris Johnson has never been for Brexit and it's a, he's a political opportunist? When he was a reporter at The Telegraph in the 90s, he literally did a lot to swing the right side of politics to, uh, where the, to, to the point where the natural position for the right side of politics was being a Eurosceptic. He uh, was one of the front people for the Brexit campaign literally quit cabinet because he wasn't happy with Theresa May's deal. Uh, and the current deal that he's put forward gets uh, gets us out of the uh, single market and the customs union. Um, where So in every meaningful way, it is Brexit. A lot of uh, the support for the Brexit party since the deal is being announced has dramatically diminished. You've had Brexit party members flooding to become Conservative Party members uh, because they're happy with Boris Johnson's deal. So I think to say that it's not gonna, not Brexit and he's not committed to Brexit, I think is a bit of a furphy because he, he is committed to Brexit. He, he's running the campaign on let's get Brexit done uh, let's make Brexit happen. But why does uh, there need to be another election over Brexit? There's been like three elections. There was a David Cameron, to, there was the referendum, be, there was three. Because of the Theresa political May. deadlock. Yeah, yeah, so there needs to be an election October over Brexit. October 31 came and went. No, no, so uh, the reason that there needs then. to be one is because the political system in the UK is not designed to enforce referendums against a parliament itself. You, we're asking a parliament that is divided. So I, I keep thinking about it this way. Imagine you were a Remainer MP um, uh, who fully supported Remain, and your electorate fully supported Remain. And then the referendum happened. Your electorate did not support the referendum, did not support Leave. What should you do? Well, the issue was there was a lot of MPs from Leave electorates that didn't go ahead with that. Yeah, yeah that, no, was, that no, was the issue. No, because, so they should but, have done... But, 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 so but, but part of that is because the the claim that you've made that there's only one Brexit and it's a no-deal Brexit, Yes, that's not what the referendum said. Yes, it is. In what it sense? was, it was leave or remain. No, no, leave it was, means leave. There's no trade deal. There's no Irish backstop. There's no payments. That wasn't on the ballot. It was leave. <laughs> that was the no, no. But so you can you can leave is, with is, trade deals. No, you can but leave this, without is, trade this deals. has been invented by the political class. Mm. This idea that you you leave with something. No, that's just an invention to prevent <laughs> it from happening. And that's what Boris Alex, Alexander 
is saying as well. Well, let's let's talk about how re- how likely is this strategy because this is what they, this is the strategy, and you may well be sceptical. But the Conservatives are targeting seats like Dudley North, uh, which is held by Labor with a majority of twenty two. So it's held by the Labor Party. Twenty two. Twenty two votes. Twenty two. The seat of votes. Dudley North okay. was only oh, won by Labor by twenty two <laughs> votes, and in the um, the referendum, uh, they voted Leave seventy one percent. So the Conservatives are now saying uh, we're going to get our majority by t- targeting Dudley North, Ipswich, Stockton South, th- these sorts of seats, which are Labor but Leave, and that's yep. how they're going to get above, uh, get their numbers back up again. So. And it's still an issue because um, Nigel Farage has. Uh, and it's a massive, massive issue for the Conservatives because Nigel Farage is running in those seats. Those seats are the must-win mm. for the Conservatives. Nigel Farage is running. And in a first-past-the-post system, there's no preferences flooding back. So it could potentially split the vote and enable the Labor Party to win all these seats they weren't meant to win uh, because they've got the highest vote because um, Leave and the or Brexit Party and the Conservatives are battling out uh, against each other. Yeah, yeah so but the, the idea that the Brexit Party is splitting the vote is wrong. It's the Conservative Party splitting the vote. That's how I see it. The <laughs> Conservative Party is splitting the Brexit vote. I mean, the Conservatives had their time. They had the chance to do Brexit. They didn't do it. Um, too bad. But I, but they I literally, sorry, sorry. You say they had the chance to do Brexit. At every point as, when Boris has been Prime Minister, his aim has been to get through Brexit, even a no-deal Brexit. Um, but, you know, the courts eventually tried to basically overturned uh, that that proposition. He shouldn't have obeyed by their decisions, though. I mean, he could have just said on October 31, he could have issued an edict saying... We're you do not, have to follow the courts. No, you have to but follow the courts and you have to follow what the parliament said. Which he is could have said as of October so, so 31. So you, you believe in the Chinese system? I believe that <laughs> um, on October 31, what he should have said was um, we're not enforcing any of the arrangements with the EU, so there'll be an amnesty. If he really wanted Brexit, he could have done it. He, the point is he doesn't want it. He's never wanted it. Uh, I, 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 as I said, I just, I, I don't believe that he doesn't want. Well, I'll tell you who does it. want Brexit on the ballot. Jeremy Corbyn does secretly, of course, want Brexit. Is uh, is leading a party that is trying to launch a um, second referendum. Um, would a second referendum work, Dan? No. Why do you need? <laughs> how many more votes are we going to have? I mean, it's going to be just. That was a setup, to be clear. It's not going to. Uh, it's not going to happen. It's like. Um, they're going to, people are going to have to keep voting until they realise that Brexit won't happen and then they give up. That, that's been the strategy all along, slow walking into oblivion. Why do you have to have a referendum? Uh, <laughs> this is one of but, the Cor- but the problem is Corbyn doesn't have a view, does he? No, I think so, he, no, no, he's very pro-Brexit personally and he's, yeah, yeah, but uh, as, but he's but not enough of a liar to, to state his party's policy but with any... That's right. So, but he's, my understanding of his public position is he doesn't have a position as the leader of the Labor Party, right? Yeah, no. And that's yeah, which, the sort of leadership that you're looking for. Massive <laughs> problem for the Labor Party because uh, from watching the debate uh, overnight, the uh, every single question <laughs> that Boris Johnson answers, he puts the question to Jeremy Corbyn, what way will you vote in the referendum that you're going to have? Which side will you support? And he won't be, he can't, literally mm. every question, he can't say whether he's going to support leave or remain in the referendum. In some ways, yeah. it's, it's a shame <laughs> that we, that we um, uh, have to discuss Brexit so much in this context because meanwhile there is an actual election campaign going on mm. and which itself is an extremely consequential one mainly because... Corbyn is, you know, the most left-wing socialist leader the Labor Party's had in a very, very long time, and and certainly the the only one with a 
with a shot at actually uh, forming government. He's done a rare thing, which is look at Australia's national broadband network and say, that looks like that worked really well. I should definitely And that, that is only it. one of the many, many nationalisations he has promised. So, yes, so, so they're, they're talking about nationalising... Uh, sorry, still your phone. So add to that, and you can Please. come back to broadband, no, no. but um, uh, nationalising water again, uh, railways, a whole Abolishing private schools. Abolishing and seizing schools. assets. Yeah, it's a wholesale nationalisation of the economy. He's also going to. Um, I was re- so he's going to release his manifesto. I think tomorrow, but he plans to release launch a review into Britain's colonial past. So just to sort of review into everything Britain's done in history, which which would be a hell of a review. Yeah, what? Why? No, you can read Robert Toombs's book on. That's true. I mean, yeah, we have historians for us. <laughs> <laughs> We've already kind of got that sorted. Yeah. <laughs> right. Called books, mate. Yeah. Uh, um, Why don't you read one? I know Bella can make a submission. Um, uh, Nigel Bigger's um, uh, Ethics and Empire uh, program at um, at Oxford will be a big, big part of that. That's that's absolutely right. We have come to that point in the show where we talk books and culture when we invite our panellists to talk about what they've been reading, watching or listening to. Who would like to start us off? So I've been travelling, so uh, that means I read novels because when you're on a plane you don't want to go through a heavy, thick non-fiction book. And I read um, uh, the H.P. The Lovecraft classic, At the Mountains of Madness. It's a sci-fi horrible horror novella first published in 1936. Um, it has a huge cultural cachet, uh, I should say. Obviously, you know, having now read an H.P. Lovecraft novel, I'm going to move to San Francisco in the 1970s and take a massive amount of acid and listen to <laughs> prog rock. So, um, That was his sort of high point in popular culture. That, is, writer, that, yeah. that, that, is, that is exactly what you think. It is, it, it, it's actually a, a great um, fun book and a really interesting, um, a really interesting cultural uh, uh, artifact. It's um, the plot is very brief. It's a Antarctic ancient aliens story. It's been obviously very influential for movies like um, Aliens and The Thing um, about discovering an ancient civilization or the ruins of an ancient civilization. But it's interesting because of the social science. So um, the edition I read has an introduction by the contemporary sci-fi novelist and communist China um, Mieville, um, and he points out that. Um, uh, so in, in the novel, without spoiling anything, there's the story of this alien civilization that they come across. And it's really a fairly strict adaptation of Oswald Spengler's ideas about the rise and fall of civilization. Because in the Spengler model, um, uh, Spengler was, of course, a pre-war author talking about um, rise and decline of civilizations. The, the civilizations go through a sort of vigorous stage when it's rising and then a decadent stage as it declines and um and what what hp lovecraft has done is actually fairly rigorously transpose that model onto a fictional story about ancient civilization um it's a short novel it's um uh, good fun to read but it's um interesting because of the social science and sometimes challenging political judgments that are that are buried within the um uh, within the story itself yeah, that that idea of the um, Spenglerian, you know, rise and fall of civilizations is um, uh, pretty pretty entered pretty deep into the consciousness now. It's such a such a trope that you just talk. Well, Western civilization is is still seen through that model. Yeah, and and this idea that civilizations eventually be, uh, have a decadent 
phase. And of course, every generation thinks that they're in the decadent phase. But um, yeah, they've been uh, saying it for a hundred years. Yeah, so. no, no. I mean, the ancient Romans thought they were in a decadence phase, which maybe it was a fair point. But yeah. um, uh, but yeah, Cato, yeah. Cato the Elder said that in like the fourth century yeah, BC. Yeah. So and, so and civilizations it an, it lasted another seven hundred years. Civilizations yeah. <laughs> have m- both morale and morals. We'll put it that way, and, that, and that's the sort of Spengler model. Nice, heaven. Um, so I've been listening to the Face Off podcast, which is a podcast by uh, the Herald Sun by uh, James Campbell and Matt Johnson, who had uh, Jeff Kennett and Steve Brax sit down to discuss the 1999 election, the election that changed Victoria forever. And in there, they discussed their reflections on uh, the Kennett government, the election campaign and, and the Brax government after then and, and what they did. And uh, it was interesting sort of, Hearing again about the the Kennett era, uh, an era of privatisation, of, of, of budget cuts, of uh, big infrastructure projects, um, and talking about and reflecting on how uh, that w- w- changed Victoria, how that worked for people, um, where the Kennett government might have gone wrong, uh, and particularly in the regions, they lost a lot of support, uh, which they didn't see coming, but um, the Labor Party did a lot of work in the regions in the lead up to the election. Um, council amalg- uh, amalgamations were a big issue and something I think that they've come to probably regret uh, because in a lot of regional communities that sort of is their sort of main point of contact, point of community uh, and and the council amalgamations going through I think really changed some of the uh, regions uh, for a long time and uh, they talk about the, the structural problems the Liberal Party has now where they rely on a few metro seats to win government, uh, but really their seats that Labor won at the 1999 election that were long-time Liberal seats like Bendigo and Ballarat, they've never, ever been able to win back. And until the Liberal Party can somehow find a way to win seats like that back, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to win government. We're, we're sort of 20 years past the reform period. Do they sort of think about the way... Uh, perspectives on that period have changed since. Yeah, I, I think I think they, you know, in a sense, they might have taken the wrong message. Um, y- you've still got a big infrastructure agenda, and Daniel Andrews does have a big infrastructure agenda, uh, but well, he's got lots of small infrastructure agendas. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but the the hard reforms might seem like too too hard now. Uh, because of all the issues that it caused. But I think if you look back, Steve Brax actually admitted that, you know, um, Jeff Kennett actually did a lot of the, the hard work. He was able to keep the keep the uh, economic program of the Kennett government while he, in his words, delivering a social dividend. And, and a lot of people felt they were, they were left out of that social dividend of the hard reforms. And also it was very believable because Brax is actually a nice bloke. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, terrific, terrific fellow. Um, as a speaking as a former chief of staff to the minister for local government during that period <laughs> of amalgamation, I have some skin in the game here, and uh, I seem to remember defend uh, your failures, Jeff. Defend Jeff, your absolutely. Failures. I could reflect uh, a special episode of the podcast coming up. I mean, there's hours <laughs> of material there, but uh, I mean, it was certainly a policy um, very much identified with the premier personally. Uh, it was an efficiency. Uh, agenda that uh, did deliver real results, uh, but at political costs and perhaps social costs made more sense in urban areas, regional areas, the closer you got to rural areas, the more of a failure it was. 
does Jeff Kennett accept, did he accept that that was his personal preference? Does he accept responsibility for driving that policy through? It, this was not something that was. Have you met any politicians? <laughs> I, I believe so, but I think he does reflect that it might have been delivered poorly uh, in the regions. Um, but delivered poorly. <laughs> no, well, it, so so he doesn't resile from a no, desire uh, to uh, get it, from two hundred and something local councils down to seventy eight. No, I don't think he. I don't think he regrets that. I think it was right, received. Okay. Well, that's, it was received well, poorly by then. regions where councils. <laughs> were so it was the right focus. policy, but if we had have just been a little bit more clever about it. Probably. We, Probably. we, we could but have abolished their councils, but in I some do, other way. I do highly recommend the podcast, and it does feature friend of the show and IPA adjunct fellow Richard Alsop as well. So. In uh, this discussion, to be clear, Evan, you are the proxy for Jeff Kennett. So uh, so Scott is angry <laughs> with you personally. <laughs> is there any, so way you could, um, <laughs> any way you could undo? Like, do you think you could ever go back to more of a local, local council? Um, like re, uh, incidentally, the, uh, sorry, Evan, I will throw to you, uh, but uh, they, the Labor actually did. One of them was tremendous, even more unpopular than most, than most, which was the amalgamation of the two Benalla councils with uh, the Shire re, of yeah. Mansfield. Okay. And uh, so uh, Brumby that. and Brax just said, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll split them up again. And it was tremendously popular and helped them win, win a seat. <laughs> sorry, Evan. No, I was, I was done. <laughs> Do you think we should go back? Um. I mean, what, what's, I, th I think there is a merit in some of the bigger local councils. You look at um, ones in, in the inner city, especially like Yarra and Darabin and now Melbourne, um, they've become too big and they're reaching into all these different areas of politics that are, are way out of their control. Well, no one cares if a local council has declared a climate emergency. No one cares what the local council's issue is with the border protection policy of Australia or um, whether they have any uh, stake or nuclear view on uh, nuclear weapons or Israel-Palestine. It's not up to a local council to do that. It's up to a local council to cut red tape, reduce rates and fix local roads and collect rubbish. Well, one that of should the, be the job of a local council. One of the problems that we have is that we want more localism. Um, but the local governments are terrible vehicles for that. Um, they tend to be um, filled with time servers and local rent seekers, um, uh, and you can't. We're not going to get that desirable community identification, um, community coordination from these strange bureaucratic creatures of the state government, um, and. Uh, now that's certainly the true the, the case in urban and regional areas. That may be less the case in rural areas. And I'll defer to your view, Scott. Um, As I say, this is this is actually worth a podcast coming up with localism. And that is Dan's, a super Dan's, specific podcast, but okay, we can Dan's do that passionate about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do we do need a, an agenda for. We do localism. no no we should uh, no that's a good idea. Let's I do just localism. resent that I'm lumped in with hipsters in my. I'm in Hobson's Bay. Oh, so you want a really tiny, yeah, tiny yeah. council. Because like, I, I live in Altona, <laughs> so I'm in, Hobson's, I'm in Hobson's Bay. And then i got like hippies living in Yarraville. You and Professor Sinclair Davidson, I have to say yeah. as well. Why they? do I always well, hold it up for? He's in Seaholm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Both you both run for Altona's. council. No, no, I think he wants to. I'd never get in. The Republic of One. <laughs> <laughs> the Republic no, of One. I just Wild. want the Republic of Altona. The, the true localism is the individual, as I was saying. Well, there you go. Well, that's what they used to have. We'll, we'll split it up again. Uh, there's coming to you soon. Um, well, alternating science fiction. So I will go with an Amazon Prime series called uh, The Man in the High Castle. And uh, this is a terrific series, actually. it's um, They've just uploaded season four. 
Um, so I know what I'm doing for the next uh, couple of weeks. It's uh, based on a novel by Philip K. Dick. It is It does have a sci-fi premise, which is that uh, there's an alternate reality in which um, uh, the Axis powers won the war. Germany and Japan uh, split North America and indeed the world essentially between them. Uh, the Germans occupying the, the east coast of the US and the and the Japanese, as well as taking over the South Pacific and Australia, take over uh, the west coast of the US. Um, so that's that's the, the, the sort of the setup. Um, but then, like most Philip K. Dick novels, it's um, uh, you know it's he wasn't great at character, but I think this this series is. There are some terrific characters. Amazon Prime, it was their first big foray into drama. So they spent a lot of money on mm. the, the production values, the writing, um, the the way they put the stories together. Uh, it's terrific. And, you know, there is a resistance uh, that arises in this world, even though it seems hopeless when um, uh, the Germans and the Japanese are running things. So it's about, you know, the, the, the flicker of freedom. Uh, one of the main characters, an absolutely gripping character is uh, uh, an American who was in the US Army, saw Washington uh, levelled by an atomic blast uh, by the Germans and went over to the Nazis and becomes the senior Nazi in America. So, and it, it's such is a finely drawn character because it, repellent, obviously, um, but then it's just a human reacting in that situation. So it reminded me of uh, that Souls and Itzen's line about the line between good and evil runs down the middle. And, you know, they're always challenging people. What would you have done? And, mm. you know, there's every gradation of person in this from um, total quizzling, enthusiastic Nazi to people who accommodate themselves to the regime and then people who basically give their lives in the service of the resistance. And um, the central character is a woman, um, uh, Juliana Crane, played by Alexa Davalis, who I hadn't come across before, and she is amazing. Best thing about sci-fi is you get lots of range. Yeah, uh, you can do all kinds of things. So, uh, highly recommend if you see an opportunity. If you haven't got Amazon Prime, uh, which is you know very much a second fiddle after Netflix, but keep an eye out for a free trial. Get it for a month. Just binge watch the Man in the High Castle and see about how people try and recover their freedom against totalitarian states. <laughs> good so, lesson, thank good you. Good to, uh, <laughs> probably good to learn now. <laughs> <laughs> learn some tricks. Good Start to learn some tricks. Bury, the, uh, bury those guns for later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I'm reading this book by uh, Jeremy Zamet, who was with the uh, Centre for Independent Studies, now is with the Australian Financial <laughs> Review. Uh, the book is called Corporate Virtue Signaling, How to Stop Big Business from Meddling in politics a very good timely book very good book to read very worthwhile quite short but lots of good analysis basically what jeremy has to say is a lot of what we already sort of know in a way that there's you know big business are becoming more active in social issues environmental climate issues that this this means that their uh, focus is moving away from their shareholders and their customers and the supply chains and more to these other um Yes, quote unquote non-traditional business issues. Uh, what Jeremy suggests is um, rather than having sort of corporate social responsibility embedded in um, sort of ASX regulations and guidelines, he wants to his proposal is to change it with what he calls the um, community pluralism uh, principle, which is basically to take into consideration the diversity of views that people have um, around the country, rather than just focusing on a narrow 
um, set of views. I'll just quickly, uh, if I can get to the page, read out what it might be. So he says a guiding statement of principle um, that could serve that this kind of pluralism would be, um, I won't read the whole thing that he has, but basically, uh, you know, it's a matter for boards of directors and other uh, corporate decision makers to manage um, uh, different risks by ensuring that companies respect and reflect the pluralism of Australian society and remain open to the views and values of employees, customers, shareholders and stakeholders across the community. So, I mean, certainly don't disagree with that as a principle. How would you go about actually embedding that or changing the views of business leaders is um, perhaps more of a challenge. But what, what sort of comes to my mind um, in reading this and the other commentary on corporate social responsibility is um, what exactly is wrong with it? Um, what exactly is wrong about a business? You know, I, on the one hand, I think a business should be able to say, well, yeah, we're going to forego profit in order to um, talk about climate change or to have uh, hiring decisions based upon quote-unquote diversity rather than capability to do the job. Now, I think that's bad, but I, I sort of defend the, the, the freedom of a business to be able to yeah. do that. I'd be, be interested in what other people's I, I, views I think are. there's two sides to that. So I think if you if, if we all decided to set up our, a for-profit business together and we said, okay, this is for-profit, but it's for-profit in a way that pursues our shared political agenda. So we're going to make large statements about the dignity mm. of work and human freedom and all that sort of thing. I think that's I, I think that's great and we should definitely be allowed to. Unfortunately, corporation law as it stands in Australia selects against that because it does put things like corporate social responsibility into some mm. of the requirements. It's more of a concern though if we take over a company and pursue a political agenda that the shareholders haven't signed off on mm. themselves. And we're doing so in a way that um, uh, doesn't act in the best shareholder interest. So mm. th there's, there's clearly, uh, do the shareholders know, do the shareholders agree with that strategy? Um, uh, that seems to be the moral um, decision mm. that has to be made. But I, I, I agree with you. I think uh, I don't see a problem with um, a lot of voluntary organisations. A firm is a voluntary organisation sprouting up in society to pursue all sorts of political agendas or social agendas or profit agendas or what have you. And I think we probably need a legislative framework that facilitates that better than we do now. Mm. By the way, I don't think it's good. Like, I'm very worried about it. Um, and I think this is a broader thing of like everything is political, you know. So I'm I'm a fan of distinctions. So I think that there's politics, there's business, there's sport, there's family. You know, that I don't is think, incredibly old school. <laughs> yeah, but I don't I don't think that there should be much overlap because as Aristotle, you know, taught about virtue, that things should do what they're supposed to do. You know, as I write in the IPA review, cricket is about cricket. It's not about no, I think, I think you'll about, find it's about um, social uh, responsibility. Yeah, no, 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 it's about. <laughs> so, but this is a, this is a problem, and all these things get kind of melded together. Um, so, I think it's a big problem. I just don't know what to do with it, and it gets to the fundamental issue that I have, which is, what do you do in a free market when everyone has really bad ideas? Do you defend the free market, or do you say this is really actually going in a bad direction? We're going to have to override override this. We, well, for the moment, we can fight uh, that battle of ideas. Um, as you, as you, um, there's some excellent series of columns uh, which I'm commending, not just because they were written by the chairman of the IPA, but um, uh, <laughs> Janet Albrechtson in The Australian has pointed out that there's nothing new in the concept that uh, corporations mm. can have regard to the interests of stakeholders as well as shareholders. So there's nothing new in that. But what, what uh, Jeremy Sammet 
uh, from what you describe, has pointed out is that from that opening, they've, they've driven this corporate social responsibility. And, and I think we need to come up with a law. It might be another Wilds law or we'll name it after somebody. But anyone with diversity in their title is opposed to diversity. So, so all these corporations are being advised by diversity officers who don't actually believe in viewpoint diversity. And I really liked what Jeremy wrote there. Which yeah, is, that's right. If you're mm. serious about diversity, actually be serious yeah. about it and, and not just say, we've looked at our diverse staff or customer base and this is the, you know, the line, the, the Leninist approach to governing corporations. That's right, so, that's right. So good luck to that. Now, we'll recommend that and we'll also put up uh, as a link uh, Dan's article on cricket, which has just gone live on the IPA <laughs> website that did appear in the IPA review, as you would know if you remember because you would have received it in the mail. You have been listening to Looking Forward, uh, which is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. Go to ipa.org.au to join or donate. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Evan Mulholland. Thanks, Scott. And Daniel Wilde. Thank you. And, of course, our producer in the studio, Josh Stranger. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.